The Rhetoric of Terror and the Rhetoric of Jihad, a Philosophical and Theological Evaluation by Janar Tasliman, narrated by Fred Stella. 1. Introduction In this article, I will try to demonstrate the misuse of the rhetoric of terror and jihad, and how that process avoids the formation of a communicative process. With the word rhetoric, I mean the persuasive use of language, especially for political means. Optimism about globalization was the dominant trend in the world when the Cold War ended. However, with September 11th, the Pandora's box was opened and optimism collapsed all along with the Twin Towers in the heart of the United States, the Leviathan of the globalizing world. With this event, people who were already skeptical about optimism because of the 1991 Gulf War and who defended the thesis of the clash of civilizations now had a stronger hand. The words terror, Islam, jihad started to be used more frequently in the debates about the future of the world. These new fears attracted the attention of many different areas, from the philosophy of religion to political philosophy, from the philosophy of language to ethics and hermeneutics, from international relations to theology. I want to begin my article with a quotation from Jacques Derrida on September 11th, with which I express my feelings on the reason why I chose to write on this topic. A philosopher would be one who seeks a new criteriology to distinguish between comprehending and justifying. For one can describe, comprehend, and explain a certain chain of events or a series of associations that lead to war or to terrorism without justifying them in the least, while in fact condemning them and attempting to invent other associations. One can condemn unconditionally certain acts of terrorism, whether of the state or not, without having to ignore the situation that might have brought them about or even legitimated them. 2. Terror as Rhetoric We hear sentences like the definition of terror, the real terrorists are, or they call us terrorists, but in fact, very often. In all of these definitions, terror is treated as if it were a platonic idea existing in the world of ideas and guarantees its real meaning. But in a study, it is stated that there are 109 different definitions of the word terror. That means it does not have a single truth. In fact, we must be careful about the nature of language and its words for that matter, as it has been discussed by Wittgenstein, that they are a collection of tools and are shared and learned in society, and we are all a part of a big language game. So after accepting language as a sociological structure, we should rephrase our sentences like, with the word terror, people usually mean, or according to the FBI's description, terrorists are, or according to Hezbollah's description, terrorists are, to show that we acknowledge this fact. In this way, we will see that these definitions are not innocent or random, but they are related to certain agendas and ideologies. Foucault says, we are subjected to the production of truth through power. Dictating how language should be used is one of the ways through which the power of politics is exercised. 
The word terror was first used during the French Revolution of 1789. In contrast with our everyday usage, it was used by the Jacobins with a positive connotation, since the violent acts they performed were seen by them as necessary acts to achieve a peaceful environment. In our time, the word terror is used to describe any form of violence intended to subdue political opposition. Thus, it has a negative connotation. That is why everybody is eager to label his opponent with this word. But since there is no single definition for terror, and there is no one perspective on who the terrorists are, someone's freedom fighters may very well be the terrorists for the other. For example, the founder of Hezbollah, which some consider as a terrorist group, Fadlallah, said, We do not see ourselves as terrorists because we do not believe in terrorism. To fight against the people who are invading our lands is not terrorism. We see ourselves as mujahids who are fighting for a holy war. Fadlallah legitimizes the actions of his organization as fighting for their freedom. On the other hand, the FBI defines terrorism as the unlawful use of force and violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government, the civilian population, or any segment thereof in furtherance of political or social objectives. The reason for the FBI's definition's emphasis on the actions against government is related to its position. Yet historically, the first usage of the word terror was to define a government terror. Besides these definitions, international agreements such as the Hague Conventions of the late 19th and early 20th centuries and the Geneva Conventions of 1949 show that states can commit criminal acts like state terrorism also. Then terrorism becomes a moral problem that stems from the nature of its victims and the methods, not identity, of its agents. As can be seen, the words terror and terrorist can vary depending on the country, organization, or the individual who is using them. We also witness how language can be used as a dictating element quite clearly. We see on the news almost every day how unlawful terrorists fight and how legal are the forces fighting them. Well, who decides who is lawful and who is not? This is done mostly by the power of language, which we call rhetoric. And according to C.A.J. Cody, the difference in linguistic habits that rationalize one's violent acts depends on whether they are with us or not. America's approach towards the Afghan Mujahids, warriors, during and after the Afghan-Soviet War between 1979 and 1989, is a good example of how the definition of terror and terrorist can change through rhetoric. The Afghan Mujahids were declared holy warriors and were assisted by the American government in their fight against the Soviet invasion. But when the Taliban's attacks turned against America, those holy warriors became terrorists and the first targets in the war on terror. So right-cause fighters can become terrorists overnight when they change their rivals. Even their methods roughly stay the same depending on who calls them terrorists. The poem quoted by Cody in his article The Morality of Terrorism questions this rhetoric of terrorism. Throwing a bomb is bad. Dropping a bomb is good. Terror, no need to add, 
depends on who's wearing the hood. An American philosopher, Thomas Capitan, comments on the damage caused by the use of the rhetoric of terror as well. The rhetoric serves to silence meaningful political debate. Those normally inclined to ask why are fearful of being labeled soft on terrorism, while the more militant use the terrorist label to deface the distinction between critical examination and appeasement. Those who succumb to the rhetoric contribute to the cycle of revenge and retaliation by endorsing violent actions of their own government, not only against those who commit terrorist actions, but also against those populations from whose ranks the terrorists emerge, for the simple reason that terrorists are frequently themselves civilians, living amid other civilians not so engaged. The consequence has been an increase in politically motivated violence against civilian targets, terrorism under any other name, under the rubric of retaliation or counterterrorism. The rhetoric of terror knows only the language of force. As long as they perceive themselves to be victims of intolerable injustices and view their oppressors as unwilling to arrive at an acceptable compromise, they are likely to answer violence with more violence. Terrors being used as rhetoric can cause different forms of dangers as well. Labeling different groups as terrorists may cause to create new coalitions among them, even if they do not share common values, or even if they are hostile to each other. For example, it is very uncommon for Muslim-majority countries to share the same views on political matters, but one of those rare unifying subjects is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Muslim countries think that the Palestinians are treated unjustly in this conflict by the Israelis. To lump a terrorist organization in with the Palestinian groups fighting the Israelis under the same umbrella as terrorists may cause tougher reactions towards Palestinians on one side of the world, but at the same time, it may also increase the number of supporters and sympathizers of that particular terrorist organization, which with the rhetoric is equalized with the Palestinians, and which actually see violence as the only solution in some parts of the world. So it is philosophically and ethically unacceptable to label any action as terror and expect it to be accepted as such without an objective evaluation, as objective as possible. Every violent action has to be considered separately from the other violent actions, and then has to be examined analytically. To put all violent actions under the same heading into one basket is wrong, because each action has a different cause. Some can be just, while others are unjust, and different targets, and each action is a consequence of different circumstances. People who think that they can affect public opinion in this way must realize that they could be increasing the number of their enemies inadvertently. 3. Jihad as Rhetoric No doubt, many concepts of Islam, especially jihad, have been used as rhetoric, just like terror, to mobilize the masses against an enemy. But for Muslims, there is an important difference between the ontological status of Quranic concepts and human-invented ones, terror being an example. Islamic terms, unlike the others, have an original sacred text, the Qur'an, from which they are derived, and with a coherent hermeneutical approach to the text, we can grasp the real meaning of its concepts. 
Thus, we can avoid them being used as rhetoric. According to Islam, the Quran is the text through which God establishes His relationship with humans, and Prophet Muhammad is chosen to transmit this message. Since the source of the Quran is God, it is transcendental. But its language and sentences are for humans to comprehend, and thus, Muslims are required to develop a coherent method to understand and use the meanings correctly. But throughout history, and even today, jihad and other Islamic terms were and are still used as rhetoric. For example, in the 12th and 13th centuries, Hassan, Sabah, and the assassins used religious terminology rhetorically for their own political benefits. During the Gulf War in 1991, Muslim leaders obtained fatwas to legitimate their participation in the American-led coalition forces against Saddam Hussein. On the other hand, Osama bin Laden declared a jihad against the USA because of its involvement in the Gulf War. These events are just a few of the examples of how jihad and other Islamic concepts are used as rhetoric. In fact, in the Middle East, declaring war without Islamic justifications is very difficult. This is because, from the first days of Islam until our time, with no intervention, Islam has been the most important mobilizing factor of regional culture. Even the most secular of people have used Islam in order to generate public support in the case of war. David Rappaport explains how Saddam Hussein, who was a secular leader fighting against the fundamentalists, used jihad when he wanted to mobilize the Iraqi people. He called for a jihad to expel the Western infidel and to liberate from evil and occupation the sacred sites in Saudi Arabia. A color photograph depicting a shirtless President Hussein kissing the shrine at Mecca and another of him in full military dress kneeling in prayer at that most sacred Islamic shrine alternated in the background as his speech was read. Since the crisis began in August 1990, his language has become saturated with religious references. 4. Taking the Quran Seriously on the Issue of Jihad The term jihad means to strive, according to the Quran. Striving for anything can be identified as jihad. Thus, it has psychological, intellectual, and sociological dimensions. A Quranic verse quoted here gives this meaning. O believers, go out in the cause of God, whether light or heavy, and strive, jihad, in the service of God, wealth, and soul. This is better for you if you understand. Surah Repentance, verse 41. Wars fought in the name of God can also be called jihad because they contain strife against the enemy. But in the Quran, the words kital and harb are specifically used to emphasize war. Despite this difference between the words, only jihad has become the subject of primary importance in the books and debates on this issue. And as a result of this, all the wars fought supposedly in the name of Islam have been called by this name. But a person studying war or jihad in Islam must take into consideration all the verses where these words are used in the Quran. Most people agree on the issue that, even though it was often different in practice, the Muslims are told to fight only when they are attacked, 
and not to fight for their personal interests and benefits. However, the most important difference occurs when the question is asked, is jihad a defensive war for Muslims, or is it a permanent war against the members of other religions and belief systems? If we look at the Quran as a whole, it is clear that the verses about war address only the people who attack Muslims. The two verses clarifying this subject are, So if you are oppressed, oppress those who oppress you to the same degree, and fear God, and know that God is with those who are pious and follow the right path. Surah the Cow, verse 194. And, To those against whom war is made, Permission is given because they are wronged. Surah the Pilgrimage, verse 39. So the Quran gives permission to fight only against the aggressor. Hanafi jurists and some Hanbali and Maliki jurists are of the same mind with this view. But on the other hand, Shafi jurists and some other jurists from the Hanbali and Maliki sects agree that having beliefs in a religion other than Islam is reason enough to declare war. The Shafi'i jurists tried to back their belief with this. But when these months prohibited for fighting are over, slay the idolaters wheresoever you find them, and take them captive, or besiege them, and lie in wait for them at every likely place. Surah Repentance, verse 5. But if this verse is read till the end of the surah, it will be understood that it refers to the people who attacked the Muslims first and that they were the ones who disobeyed the treaty. Let's look at the first verse of this. Immunity is granted those idolaters by God and His Apostle with whom you have a treaty. Surah Repentance, verse 1. And from the continuation of that, it is understood that they were the first to attack. But if they violate their oaths after their covenant and attack you for your faith, fight the chiefs of unfaith. For their oaths are nothing to them, that thus they may be restrained. Will you not fight people who violated their oaths, plotted to expel the messenger, and attack you first? Do you fear them? Nay, it is God whom you should more justly fear, if you believe. Surah Repentance Verses 12 and 13. According to a coherent hermeneutic approach to the Quran, the most important principle is that the wholeness of the Quran has to be taken into consideration when explaining an issue, and the verses have to be evaluated along with their previous and following verses. Siyak Sibak. So if the Shafi'i jurists had followed this rule and had not removed the verse from its context, then they could have easily understood that a person's being an unbeliever would not be a justification of war. But, on the contrary, they tried to support the thesis by claiming that the verses which give permission to fight only the people who attacked first are abrogated, and they used some of the hadiths to support their views. These are two problems. The claim that some parts of the Quran abrogate other parts and that the hadiths surpass the authority of the Qur'an are two very important issues that should be looked into seriously. Ahmet Ozil says that claiming that there is abrogation between the verses on jihad has no scientific point, 
Since we do not have a list showing how many of the verses are abrogated and how many are not by revelation, the people who put forward this claim have left the choice of selection to the jurists and have left the religion to the mercy of those jurists. Muhammad Assad also says that the abrogation claim has no Quranic basis, and in fact, there is not a single reliable hadith which supports this idea. We must remember here that the alleged provision to stone the adulteress to death also derives from abrogation claims, although this sentence contradicts the Quranic punishment completely. If we wish to understand every subject within its context, we can achieve it only by preserving the wholeness of the Quran, which requires us to oppose the abrogation claims. In order for some verses of the Quran to abrogate the others, there should be a discrepancy between the Quranic verses. This allegation is in opposition with the verses claiming that there is no discrepancy in the Quran. Do they not consider the Quran? Had it been from other than God, they would surely have found therein much discrepancy. Surah The Woman, verse 82. The authority of the jurists who claim that the verses which are against their ideas are abrogated and who choose only the hadiths supporting their ideas from among the politically fabricated hadiths has surpassed the authority of the Quran. On the other hand, it is important to understand the interpretations of the jurists are not objective. They are affected by the environment, time, and society in which they live, as well as the political atmospheres surrounding them. From the first centuries of Islam on, the politicians wanted to unite the Muslims against their enemies to expand the borders of Islam with conquests. Whether those conquests were in accordance with the Quran's war policies is another question to be discussed. The formation of the rhetoric of jihad against the others played a very important role for this aim. We must remember that this rhetoric was not used only against the people who were not Muslims, but even by some Muslims who declared each other infidels. The abrogation claims and the fabricated hadiths have played a very important role in jihad's losing its Quranic meaning of a defensive war and having it redefined as a permanent war with unbelievers, which means, in fact, a perpetual war. Other serious problems caused by fabricated hadiths, fatwas, and abrogation claims are about the freedom of belief. Judgments such as a Muslim who converts or who refuses to pray should be killed, or Muslims who do not fast should be beaten, derive from sources other than the Quran. To the contrary, two verses about freedom of belief in Islam are as follows. There is no compulsion in matter of faith. Surah the Cow, verse 256. Remind them, you are surely a reminder. You are not a warden over them. Surah the Overpowering, verses 21 and 22. If we can clarify that according to Islam, being an unbeliever is not a cause for war, and that there is no compulsion in Islam, then this will pave the way for forming a better communication between the cultures. This claim, fighting with infidels, would mean being at war all the time, which would make any communication impossible. As for the latter, the effect of freedom of belief has an indirect effect. At first glance, 
it is perceived as an internal problem of the Islamic societies alone. But we should remember that to call people unto the path of God, dawah, is a religious duty. If you kill the people who convert to other religions in Islamic countries while calling the others to Islam, it will be impossible to have communication under these conditions as well. Because of such beliefs, a person who converted to Christianity in Afghanistan in 2006 was sentenced to death, but was not killed because of international pressure. Despite the Quranic verses, this kind of jihad comprehension within a religious package and compulsion of belief will lead us to a communicative pathology. It is not hard to imagine that a world with no communication will be full of violence. 5. The Quran and the Ethics of War There are many debates on whether the approach of the Quran to war is ethically acceptable or not. I can name four possible ways to approach the other. The one who asserts that the Quranic approach is not acceptable should show which of the alternatives is. I think that the Quran's attitude, not the attitude of all Muslims throughout history, towards war is ethically acceptable. 1. To fight without a rational or reasonable cause. This is against the Quran. The thugs in history provide a good example of this attitude. They used to kill the trespassers as offerings to the goddess Kali. It is thought that the thugs have murdered about one million people in the 1200 years they lived. 2 to fight for rational causes. There is no doubt that wars mostly have been fought for rational causes like economic reasons between nations. According to this approach, gaining and preserving power is usually the main target of the countries. Considerations of justice or injustice are out of the question. They are irrelevant. Although this approach had been applied extensively throughout history, this attitude should not be approved from a philosophical and ethical perspective. What makes Machiavelli famous is his open defense of this kind of approach, and after him there have been many philosophical attitudes which supported this view. The verses of the Quran which give permission to fight only in cases of attack, such as Surah the Pilgrimage, verse 39, are against this approach. But like the examples we have already seen, the authority of the Qur'an had been surpassed as the result of religious leaders and jurists, not the religion of Islam itself, being controlled by the politicians and their hunger for power, with the help of false interpretations, abrogation claims, and fabricated hadiths. 3. Pacifism in every circumstance Although the Qur'an is against pacifism, forgiveness is preferable to punishment. We can understand that from these verses. Good and evil are not alike. Repel evil with what is good. Then you will find your erstwhile enemy like a close, affectionate friend. Surah Adoration, verse 34. But he who bears with patience and forgives surely complies with divine resolve. Surah Consultation, verse 43. According to the Qur'an, forgiveness is superior, but the Qur'an does not approve total passivism in every condition. 
Muslims are asked to fight when their religion or societies are attacked, or when there is an intention to destroy them. An absolute pacifism would increase the attacker's fierceness. This would mean allowing the children, women, and the elderly to be murdered, which is morally unacceptable and against common sense. So the Quran does not support pacifism. 4. To fight for reasonable or just causes. The verses of the Quran give permission for a just cause, and this just cause is being attacked. But Muslims who support a perpetual war with unbelievers declare the Quran's such requirements invalid. In this way, they free themselves to declare war on whomever they wish. We witness many events in history in which Muslims have declared war even on each other, declaring other Muslims as unbelievers and called it jihad. The Quran's moral attitude linking the declaration of war with the reasonable or just cause of being attacked is the most consistent ethically of the options listed. Even in international law, self-defense is accepted as an inherent right. According to the United Nations 51st article, people who face aggression have a right to self-defense. According to the Quranic approach, there are other important matters regarding war which I would like to emphasize. One of the most important of these is that the Prophet Muhammad is the only person who acted with revelation, which makes all of his religious decisions undebatable. But after him, no one can claim that he is epistemologically superior to the rest of the community and that his decisions to declare war are undebatable, like those of the Prophet. Throughout history, there have been many religious authorities from different faiths claiming to have a superior epistemological situation than the rest of the public. For example, the Church claimed that its decisions were under the protection of the Holy Spirit, and its epistemological situation was different from that of the common people. Even though there are no claims like those in the Quran, there have been similar assertions in Islam too. Many believe that some people are saints, awliya, and that every decision they make is incontestable, that these people have special protections from God, and that they, because of their epistemological superiority, can have special knowledge which ordinary people cannot attain. In addition to the claims of being saints, if one of these turns out to be Mahdi, that is, the Messiah, then the devotion to that religious authority increases considerably. This belief can and has caused declarations of wars of these leaders to be accepted without hesitation and bypassing discussions as to whether those wars were just or unjust. It is widely believed both in Sunni and Shiite sects that close to the end of the world, Mahdi will come and fight against unbelievers and in the end he will defeat them all. The Shiites believe in general that this person has been hiding for more than 1100 years. This Mahdi belief is such an important issue for the Shiites that even the power behind Ayatollah Khomeini's rebellion was the belief that Khomeini was representing the Mahdi until he himself showed up. In Sunni belief, leaders of a thousand different sects have declared themselves to be Mahdis. The person who is believed to be Mahdi gains an undebatable political power among his followers. From the Weberian perspective, Mahdi's form the most absolute type of charismatic authorities. Hassan Sabah, who is always mentioned in every debate on the roots of terrorism, has also used this belief. On the other hand, 
There is not even one verse in the Quran about the coming of the Mahdi. Many investigations of the Hadiths have proven that those about Mahdi are fabricated and were created to achieve political goals. As a result, the Quran does not approve anybody's epistemological superiority after the Prophet Muhammad. So, by attributing special epistemological properties to people, an unjust war declaration can easily be justified. In addition, aside from the commencement conditions of war, the manner in which that war is being conducted, in Latin, jus in bello, is also important when we consider the ethics of war. A war can be an unjust war at the beginning, but can be conducted justly, and the opposite of this may also happen. A war can start with a just cause and can be conducted unjustly. The verse of the Quran here is important for this subject. Fight those in the way of God who fight you, but do not be aggressive. God does not like aggressors. Surah the Cow, verse 190. As we can see clearly, while the Quran gives permission to fight back against aggressors after the war, Muslims cannot act as they like. They cannot be the aggressors when hostilities cease. Every war creates new phenomena. The difference between the tools of the old wars and those of the new wars make the debates about how war should be conducted harder. The Quran, by giving the principles but not the details on how to conduct war, gives us the flexibility to improve new methods for every age. As John Kelsey says, Islamic contribution to the rules governing the conduct of modern war is still very much in process. As I will present, the Quran's stress on signing agreements with the others can be combined with the issue of the conduct of war. As there are principles in the Quran about the commencement and the conducting of war, the Quran also tells Muslims to cease the war if the aggressor wishes to have peace. The following verses are important on this issue. But if they are inclined to peace, make peace with them. Surah Spoils of War, verse 61. God does not forbid you from being kind and acting justly towards those who did not fight over faith with you, nor expelled you from your homes. God indeed loves those who are just. Surah, The Woman Tried, verse 8. John Rawls says, No state has a right to war in the pursuit of its rational as opposed to its reasonable interests, and the majority who study the ethics of war are of the same idea. This is in line with Islam's orders. However, we have to have a clear separation between Islam and Muslims. Even if Muslims are supposed to be followers of Islam, they have their rational and worldly interests, which in many cases have surpassed their religious duties. In fact, these interests were mainly the interests of the political elite. There had been many cases, both in history and even today, where jurists or religious leaders have announced with fatwa that war was or is necessary for religious reasons. To have those fatwas was and is important for the political elite because it means that this particular war was or is just on religious grounds for the people who were or are going to fight. Secondly, in order to motivate people, they tried or try to use the ontology and eschatology of Islam. And apart from this, in Islam, 
the martyrs who die in a just war will be rewarded in the hereafter with an everlasting life full of pleasures. According to this belief, the martyrs, by sacrificing their short worldly lives, have the possibility of an excellent perpetual life. The people who are conducting wars for their rational and worldly power calculations want to use this ontology and eschatology for motivating masses. As a result, jihad has been used as a persuasion mechanism. That is why I say that jihad is used as rhetoric. 6. Making Agreement According to the Qur'an and the Communicative Action Every violent act avoids communication. Every death of a civilian or an innocent person incites revenge among people and causes a vengeful reaction. Research conducted on suicide bombers reveals that many of them have lost a family member or a loved one in war or in a conflict. This shows how communication, thus world peace, is endangered with every violent act, which will cause a chain of revenge. So Derrida is right when he says that every terrorist claims to be responding in self-defense to a prior terrorism. Kant, who follows Hobbes' rationale, says that the state of peace among men living in close proximity is not the natural state, status naturalis, Instead, the natural state is one of war, which does not just consist in open hostilities, but also in the constant and enduring threat of them. But without communication, establishing peace and overcoming the state of war is not possible. So it is of paramount importance to understand the view of Islam about communication with the others, and particularly with the enemy. Prophet Muhammad's signing the Treaty of Hudaybiyah with the idolaters, despite the dissatisfaction of those around him, is a good example of Islam's approach towards communication with the others. Even when the idolaters failed to honor the treaty after a while, Muslims did not discard it totally and continued to act accordingly towards the idolaters who continued to obey it. We can witness this in the following verse. Except those idolaters with whom you have a treaty, who have not failed you in the least, nor helped anyone against you, fulfill your obligations to them during the term of the treaty. Surah Repentance, verse 4 There are verses in the Qur'an which tell the Muslims to be loyal to their oaths, thus to their agreements. So, do not make your oaths a means of deceiving one another. Surah The Bees, verse 94 the Muslims should honor their treaties, and they should have to be loyal to their previous agreements, even if this means not helping other Muslims. Except for those who take refuge with the people between yourselves and whom is a treaty, or those who come to you, their hearts strained at fighting you, or fighting their own people. If God had so willed, He would surely have given them power over you, and they would have fought you. If they keep aloof and do not fight and offer peace, God has left you no reason to fight them. Surah The Women, verse 90 In case they ask for your help in the name of faith, you are duty-bound to help them, except against a people with whom you have a treaty, for God sees all that you do. Spoils of War, 
verse 72. The Quran's stress on treaties is not appreciated when we think about the problems we face in our own age. We see from the Quran that an agreement had been reached even with the enemies of the Prophet. This proves that there is no one, not even enemies, with whom the Muslims would not sign a treaty and have peace. The personality of the enemy cannot be accepted as a reason for not making an agreement. Since the Prophet was the only person who received revelation in his community, his justness against an enemy was approved by God directly. For example, he was warned by God with a revelation when he did not treat a person fairly. Apart from the Prophet, the idea that other people can have epistemologically special conditions is not justified by the Qur'an, since he is the last of the Prophets. So no one's charisma may supersede the Qur'an's pronouncements, which prefer peace instead of war, and no one's charisma should stop the process of making agreements which would build and maintain a peaceful environment. Whether this person is Imam Shafi'i, a charismatic leader from history, or a contemporary religious leader who is believed to be the Mahdi by some, does not create an exception. Every disagreement is a new phenomenon. We should, of course, consider and evaluate the similarities between current disagreements and the events described in the Quran. But at the same time, we should keep in mind that these disagreements are not 100% the same as the ones in the Quran. In a case of necessity, the declaration of war is only possible with the application of the primary principles of the Quran. Yet we should also know that individuals' interpretations of the necessity to declare war will never be considered like the prophets, since they do not receive revelation. Since the revelation to Muslims through the Quran has ended, none of the declarations of jihads now can be claimed as just as the prophets. We can conclude from this situation that Muslims should improve a critical approach against the interpretations which claim that war is necessary. This criticism is needed very much to avoid the presentation of political and personal goals as religious goals. Muslims, because of their ontology, and because of their epistemological approach to revelation, believe that there are universal truths. But they also know that their truths may not be accepted universally. Then, is it possible to have communication with the others for Muslims? The verses we have quoted here show that it is possible, and furthermore, they tell us that it is possible to have communication even with the worst enemy if necessary. To have a treaty is to have a communication with the other through language, and to accept that the other may still stay as the other. Jürgen Habermas says that language should be used as a medium for reaching solutions, and actors should seek to achieve agreement to have a communicative action. To reach an agreement is the goal to be achieved by the end of the communication process. 7. Is religion the source or motivator of violence? I believe it is not fair to think that most of the wars in human history were fought because of religion, just as David Rappaport, who says that religions have violence-reducing elements, but at the same time, they also have violence-producing dimensions. First of all, 
we can say that the biggest part of written history is the history of wars, and many might have been fought for religious reasons. Yet there are many wars which were prevented. But since they are not recorded in history, we do not know what prevented them. Thus, while putting the blame on religion for many wars, it would be fair to list the wars prevented by religious reasons, which I am sure there are many. Is it not true that while the religious institutions were sometimes responsible for wars, they were often responsible for peace as well? This is never mentioned, unfortunately, because prevented wars generally do not get in the history books. Second, it is the 20th century in which religion had the least impact on masses in known history, but in that century the highest numbers of people died because of wars. Third, and I think the most important, for the biggest part of human history, religions have been the most important determinant in human lives. That is why, whatever the real reasons for the wars might have been, people have used religious rhetoric to mobilize the masses to fight. Without this rhetoric, fighting would have been impossible in many cases. As historians have proven, the real reason behind many wars which were fought with religious rhetoric was to increase economic or political power. Thus, realist Hans Morgenthau is right to say that people's rational, objective, and unemotional power calculations are the biggest sources of war. Kant points out a difference between the moral politician and the political moralist. A moral politician is one who interprets the principles of political prudence so that they can be coherent with morality. On the other hand, a political moralist is the one who forges a morality to suit the statesman's advantage. The main intention of the political moralist is protecting and increasing power. Religious moralities preventing the amorality of realism had been overcome by the interpretations of the jurists, and surely those jurists had relationships with the political elite who were actually political moralists. Finally, in many cases, the concepts of religion have become rhetoric, which are used as instruments for political realism by the political moralists. So many wars which are believed to be religious wars, in fact, are political wars, which only used religious concepts rhetorically for motivating masses. Even though there might have been cases in which morality was victorious, as we have mentioned, we are unable to know them. Habermas disagrees with Samuel Huntington, who blames the difference of culture and religion for violence between societies, since he believes that the main cause of the communicative ailment is not cultural but economic. Huntington's thesis causes us to miss the economic dimensions of the problems between the West and Muslim countries. To support Habermas's thesis, I will give some statistics. Even though the Muslim countries have the richest petroleum and natural gas reserves in the world, they are among the poorest countries overall. Although a quarter of the world's population is Muslim, less than 5% of the world's revenue is produced by Muslim countries. The feeling among many Muslims is that they are economically exploited and that the Palestinians in the war with Israelis are being treated unjustly and this causes hate towards the West. I am not going to discuss whether Muslims are exploited or not, or whether or not they are treated unjustly in this article. But it is clear 
that without understanding the general sentiment of the majority of Muslims, it will not be possible to form a communicative process to solve these problems. Hatred destroys the communication between civilizations, and it is used by some groups or states to organize violent actions. Actually, from the perspective of monotheistic belief and cultural heritage, the Western and Islamic civilizations, which derive from Abrahamic tradition, are closer to each other than other civilizations in the world. If some Islamic groups were performing violent acts against others just because of their differences in religion and culture, then probably they would have attacked the Japanese or the Chinese, who have a totally different heritage. Or, if they were performing violence against countries just because they were Westerners or Christians, then they would have not attacked only some specific countries known for economically exploiting the Muslim countries, but other Christian countries such as Sweden, Spain, or Brazil. But this is not the case. I believe that religion's claim of the existence of higher values compared to worldly benefits are actually more advantageous for establishing peace than the political realists claim of gaining and protecting power for this world. That is why, in the communication process, major religions, which can help to reduce the impact of political realism, must be used to make and keep the peace. I also think it is of paramount importance to distinguish whether Islam is the source of violence or is it just used as a motivator. Although many people do not think about this important difference, apart from the defensive wars fought by Muslim armies, I can easily conclude that it was political and economic reasons that were behind almost every war they have fought. Furthermore, even in the wars which were supposedly defensive, I cannot claim that Islam played a role as it plays in praying and fasting. If certain political and economic problems had not occurred, I could easily say that many wars, supposedly in the name of Islam, would not have been fought. So in those wars and acts of violence, Islam is not the source, but it is used as a motivator. Eight, Conclusion People who wish to persuade the masses that wars are legitimate and motivate them against an enemy use terror and jihad as rhetoric. While people on one side of the world benefit from their economic power and latest technology and weaponry, people on the other side try to fight against countries with fully equipped armies by guerrilla warfare. It is an asymmetric war. Just as the people who use terror as rhetoric want all their actions to be accepted without debate, the people who use jihad as rhetoric claim that any opposition to their declaration would be disobeying Islam. As countries do not want their politics to be questioned, these groups do not want their interpretations of Islam to be debated either. Both try to suppress any objections with their respective rhetorics of terror or jihad. One side declares war on other countries and causes millions of civilians to die just because they cannot seize the activists or terrorists who hide among the civilians. And the other side, in order to take revenge on its technologically unchallengeable enemy, also attacks civilian targets and kills thousands of people. As a result, the casualties from both sides are children, women, and generally people who are unaware of what's going on. Kant's principle of no nation at war with another 
shall permit such acts of war, which shall make mutual trust impossible during some future time at peace, has been undermined continuously. The real danger may come when today's events cause bigger and unavoidable incidents in the future. In order to get out of this very dangerous predicament, we have to have fruitful communication between people and civilizations. People who cause civilian deaths, either by using the rhetoric of jihad or terror, use various arguments to justify their actions. These are usually the kind which Michael Walzer calls back-to-the-wall arguments. When conventional means of resistance are hopeless or worn out, anything goes, anything that is necessary to win. Walzer gives Great Britain of the 1940s an example from history. Because the Nazi threat could annihilate them, there was a supreme emergency in which one might well be required to override the rights of innocent people and shatter the war convention. Walzer said, They bring us under the rule of necessity, and necessity knows no rules. Rawls' perspective on the issue is, This exemption allows us to set aside, in certain special circumstances, the strict status of civilians that normally prevents their being directly attacked in war. As Andrew Fiala states, one of the philosophical principles used to justify the war on terror is the supreme emergency exemption, and in a back-to-the-wall situation, the supporters of terror, as well as the supporters of jihad, can use the supreme emergency exemption thesis to justify their actions. On the other hand, for the supporter of Kantian ethics, who do not accept any exemption, both sides are wrong no matter what their justifications, because they cause civilians to die. This will lead us to philosophically ironic results. While the supreme emergency approach is the thesis for both sides to justify themselves, on the contrary, the Kantian approach can be used by each side to blame the other. Actually, there is no practical difference between claiming both sides' rightness and both sides' wrongness. Of course, we must discuss whether the acts of violence are ethically acceptable or not from a philosophical perspective, but it seems very unlikely to reach a consensus or to have practical results that will stop the violence. That is why it is more useful to focus on the philosophical discussion towards the areas from which we can derive some concrete results. First of all, we must work on how to form a communication between civilizations, and then we must find out concrete institutions that will help us to build and to maintain universal peace. Hannah Arendt points out that the best way for individuals to be protected from harm is to actively join in the political process. That is why Muslims, where they live as minorities, should participate in the public political sphere. And the same is true for minorities of Muslim-majority countries with international organizations. As a result, Muslims can benefit from the protections offered by them, and these organizations can become legitimate in the eyes of the Muslim masses. The needed reform of the veto of the Permanent Security Council members is also important. The United Nations should not be on the side of might, but on the side of right. And after taking concrete steps to improve its legitimacy, should prepare agreements which would include Muslim countries as active and equal contractors on how to avoid war. The communicative process can be formed on many levels, avoiding the limitations of the UN. 
There will be people on both sides who will not want communication. But those who are eager should ignore the others and try to improve this process. Dorita draws attention to those on the Muslim side who are trying to build on communication instead of violence. We must help what is called Islam and what is called Arab to free themselves from such violent dogmatism. We must help those who are fighting heroically in this direction on the inside, whether we're talking about politics in the narrow sense of the term or else about an interpretation of the Quran. The same approach, selecting those who are making a concerted effort at communication in the West, should be used by Muslims. We can also improve the communicative process by criticizing the wars caused by economically determined rational goals and by encouraging the language of dialogue instead of the language of violence. If we can free ourselves from the rhetoric which is used as a marketing instrument for violence, we can get rid of a big obstacle on the road towards dialogue and peace. The biggest success will be to build concrete institutions and to keep the world peaceful through the communicative process, even when political moralists are in power. You have been listening to the Rhetoric of Terror and the Rhetoric of Jihad, a philosophical and theological evaluation by Janar Taslaman, narrated by Fred Stella. For more information on the work of Dr. Taslaman, please visit www.janartaslaman.com. This essay was recorded at the studios of Stella Communications, Grand Rapids, Michigan, USA.